Hey, Scott Walker here on You Can't Recall Courage, our podcast. We, uh, we hope everybody listening is healthy and well today. Prayers for all of our healthcare workers, uh, first responders, everybody else on the front lines as essential workers. Thanks so much for what you're doing each and every day. We appreciate it. We love you from the bottom of our hearts. Today, I'm joined by a really special guest, someone who I had the honor of serving with uh, throughout my time as governor and someone who I consider to be a great friend. I uh, love him and his family and just good people. Today, we're honored to be joined by the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, Governor Chris Christie. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hey, Scott, great to be here. Um, thanks for having me. Well, these are amazing times. Obviously, everybody listening, you and I both know that. But I was thinking about this as we ask you to join us on this podcast. Nothing obviously compares to what we're facing today. But as a governor, probably the closest thing to what we're experiencing both in the states and as a nation is handling a, a massive natural disaster. And of course, you were at the forefront of that back about eight years ago. Uh, I remember talking to you uh, uh, each night uh, for a while when you were in the midst of uh, Hurricane Sandy and the both the reactions, preparing and, and handling it, what was happening, and then, of course, everything that came afterwards, because that was one of the costliest uh, hurricanes in the history uh, of the United States ever recorded. So maybe share a little bit about how you dealt with things then and how it applies to lessons people can learn, both in the White House uh, and in state houses all across the country. Well, I, you know, I remember, obviously, that well. It was the defining moment of my eight years as governor. And, uh, and, you know, I remember texting you during it, asking if you could encourage, um, you know, power workers to come from Wisconsin to help us rebuild in New Jersey. And you worked with the folks in Wisconsin and, and sent dozens of trucks to us um, to help us restore lines and restore power to, uh, to New Jersey. So we're always going to be grateful for that. I think that what you really have to think about in, this, in these circumstances are, you can never be overprepared and you're never really in a situation where people will be critical of you if you take very strict measures. And so I think the first thing is that, you know, the white house now, I think, and, and, and for the last number of weeks has been doing the right thing in terms of the sheltering in place recommendations and all the social distancing stuff that we're doing. Um, it's painful and it's awfully painful for our economy. Uh, both on a personal level for people and as a as a country, it's it's awfully hard. But we also know that this this virus seems to be spreading, you know, relatively easily, um, and that's a that's a real danger. So when you're doing that, first be over prepared. Second is communicate to your people on a regular basis and do so completely honestly and specifically. You know, people are really scared. They're scared when they've gone through a natural disaster and lost their homes. They're scared in a situation like this where they're locked in their homes and not being able to have their normal lives. So, you know, also communicate them to them often and very specifically and honestly. And I think the third is have a plan, have a plan about how to recover and give people because a plan in the hands of a competent executive gives people hope. And that's what you really need right now psychologically for the people of the country. And certainly what we needed after Hurricane Sandy was a sense of hope that we could get back to some sense of normalcy in our lives. And so I think if you're going to narrow it down to three things that you really need to do, over-prepare and uh, over-prepare, over-prepare. Um, second, communicate frequently and both honestly and specifically with your, with your constituents. And, and third, 
have a plan and and be able to communicate that plan to people as a matter and a way of giving them hope. Well, I think those are great points. And in fact, it's been interesting watching uh, around the country, uh, both in what the reaction is to the president, the vice president and the task force, but also in individual states. Uh, I, I wish it was uniform that everybody was doing the three things you talked about. I think some states have been better than others. And I don't know that it's even necessarily partisan. I, when you and I think about governors, we think about what's what, what uh, responsibilities we have when it's a crisis like this. It really shouldn't matter so much whether you're a Democrat or Republican, but whether you do those things, whether you've had a plan and you yep. not just have it, but you practiced, you prepared, you, you communicated it, you worked on it. And then when it happens, talking, as you said, honestly and openly, I, I often the phrase I use is, uh, our, our leaders, whether it's mayors, governors, or anybody else in Washington, needs to tell us not just what we need to do, but why. The more you communicate yep. the facts and, like you said, be honest about why we need to do these things, the more people are like, likely to act on it. And then, of course, have a plan to get out. I've seen, and I think you've probably seen, um, examples of both governors who are doing this really well and other leaders and, and some maybe that aren't so well who are the leaders you've seen that you think are, are doing these things well in terms of having a plan in the past, but particularly communicating it and then having a plan for going forward? I will tell you that I think you're right about the lack of partisanship. This is much more about competence and courage than it is about partisanship. And so I'll give you two Republicans, two Democrats, who I think are doing really well. On the Democrat side, obviously, Andrew Cuomo, I think, in New York is doing an extraordinary job and in many ways doing kind of a national leadership job on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, and I think Andrew, you know, it, this is built for his type of personality. He's a strong take, take charge kind of guy. So he's done really well. Um, I, I also think, though, that Gavin Newsom has done extraordinarily well um, in California. And, and I didn't know Gavin all that well. I didn't get to serve with him for, for, uh, for uh, much time at all. But um, I think he's done a very good job in California in a you know, state with 40 million people. Um, I think he did a great job acting. I think he was the governor who acted the soonest in the country in terms of taking some very strict um, uh, you know, procedures and putting them in place. So I think he's done a good job. On the Republican side, I think Larry Hogan has been a great voice in all this. He, he was the first governor in America to close his schools. Which, which I think was an important step to take. And, and Larry, I think, has been a really fair voice um, nationally in laying out the stuff that needs to be done and, and doing it very effectively um, for Maryland. And I also think Mike DeWine in Ohio has done a very good job on the Republican side. Mike um, is a quiet guy and not necessarily as charismatic a personalities as Cuomo or Newsom or Hogan are. But in a very quiet but efficient way, I think Mike has really managed the government in Ohio very well. So I think those are four examples of governors who I think are doing it very well, regardless of party, because they're focused on getting the job done and communicating in a way that's both genuine and open. You know, Chris, that's those are great examples. It's funny. We didn't obviously talk about this in advance, but uh, uh, I had the same four on my list. I'm looking at notes I wrote down. Uh, obviously, Cuomo's you know, the area hit hardest. Uh, he's been a, and really a stark contrast, I think, to the mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, I think, has been a total train wreck uh, yep. in New York City. Thank Agreed. for the people there that the governor is a, has been quite the contrast to that. And I was surprised, too, with Gavin Newsom. I've always seen him as a highly partisan guy. 
you and I both served with uh, Governor Jerry Brown, who surprisingly, as far as California goes, was probably one of the more reasonable people in Sacramento, which is hard to imagine, but but uh, <laughs> uh, that shows yeah. you how far off the deep end they are out in California. But Newsom really has stepped up. And the one thing I would add, both for Cuomo and Newsom, is they've been smart to, to not get into the political uh, bickering and, and have said, hey, we, you know, we need the help of the, the federal government. We're, we're going to say good things about the president when they do them. Um, they may not be, obviously, they're certainly not aligned with uh, President Trump on policies, but I give them credit. It's one of the things you and I, I think, did repeatedly. When you, when you have needs that transcend partisan politics, you got to be willing to work with people who may not be in your party to get the job done. And, and I think you're right. The other two, Larry, thank God, Larry's the, also the chairman of the National Governors Association. So I, I think he has been the right person at the right time in that regard. And DeWine, one of the things that uh, people, I think, are just starting to appreciate was because he went in so aggressively early, they're likely to be one of the first states out in terms of reopening the economy, uh, but with a plan because they took quick action. They flattened the curve. They got things under control. And now they're going to be one of the, the beneficiaries, I think, of that strong leadership is going to be quicker action to get the economy going. You know, the flip side, I'm not going to name names, but I've seen a number of governors across the country who you know, seem to be behind the pack, don't tell people what they're doing, and then they just push out these orders that, that extend the stay-at-home uh, requirements far into the future. And I, I think one of the worries I have is that people are, are getting more and more frustrated. I think there's a common feeling between both frustration and fear, and uh, there needs to be a balance between the two. And so, uh, but your, your four governors are right on the mark. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Governor Christie about uh, the next step, which is not on top of most people's minds probably right now, but what, obviously this is going to have an implication for the fall elections. What is his uh, uh, prescription or what is his view of what might be happening next and what's going to be the impact in November? We'll be right back after this. Hey, Scott Walker, back on You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Governor Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey. Uh, governor Christie, some great insights about uh, how to handle and how you've handled and others have handled, but what more can be learned from handling this crisis. Some great examples of, of governors in both parties who've done well in that regard. Uh, obviously, right now, we're just thinking about how do we stay safe? How do we defeat the coronavirus? How do we have a plan for reopening the economy? How do we protect our, our civil liberties? All of those things are immediate concerns for people all across this country. But but eventually, uh, God willing, our prayers send up every day for this, eventually you know, we start to reopen the economy, we start to get things back on track. I don't know that anything will ever be normal, uh, at least as far as what it was uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year. But obviously 2020 is a big uh, election for president and for a lot of other key seats like uh, control of the United States Senate, potential control of the House, a couple of uh, key governor's races. What impact do you think uh, everything we're dealing with today in terms of the coronavirus and the economy, what impact is that going to have on the 2020 elections? Well, Scott, I, I think that um, more than any presidential election in our lifetimes, this has now turned into a referendum. Um, I think that almost that Joe Biden almost doesn't matter right now in this equation, um, that people are going to make a judgment on how President Trump dealt with this crisis. I think if they conclude that he dealt with it effectively 
and protected their lives and their economic futures, um, then I think he'll be reelected. And I think if they believe that he did not handle it the right way, um, then he won't be reelected. And it almost doesn't matter who's on the other side. I think the only thing that could disqualify Joe Biden is if he does something that's monumentally stupid, that shows him to be completely out of touch. If he does that, then that might change the equation a little bit. But assuming that we're in the same spot we are now in October, which is much of the focus is on this virus and reaction to it, I think this has almost turned into a referendum, up or down on the president. And, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know which way that's going to go. But it is in the hands of the president to control it in, in the, to a large degree. And, um, you know, obviously, given from where I sit and, and where you do, too, I'm, I'm hoping that he does control it well um, and execute on it well, uh, because I think that his policies um, need to be continued in the country. Well, as we often said when we worked together on the Republican Governors Association, uh, good policy is good politics. And meaning if he does the job well, first and foremost, as Americans, we want a good response from the governor, from the president and governors and others, uh, just because we want it uh, for our health and, and ultimately the health of our economy. But I, I think you're right on the mark. In fact, I say this somewhat jokingly, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, the best thing Democrats could do right now is is hide Joe Biden in that basement as long uh, as possible, <laughs> because to the extent uh, that it's, uh, like you say, a referendum, then at least it's up or down. Uh, the, the likelihood that Joe Biden left to his own uh, devices says something stupid uh, is increasingly, it, and it's people mistakenly think that's because of age. You and I have known Joe Biden for years. He's actually a fun guy to be around, but he, is. he has long before he, he got into his 70s has been prone to say some pretty bizarre things, often because he's so <laughs> eager to please uh, people. He, he sometimes gets ahead of himself. And so uh, that what you just said is very, very possible uh, at some point in the future when he's back out in the trail and scrutinized, at least to some degree. Uh, but but I think you're right. Bottom line is it, it ultimately is a referendum. How, how does that have an impact on the other races? Obviously, key races in the Senate. You've got uh, monster races in Maine and North Carolina in Arizona, Iowa, Colorado, and then on the Democrat side, particularly in Alabama for the United States Senate. How do you think that the larger issue, the referendum on the president in regards to how he and his team has handled this, what impact does that have in those Senate races? Well, Scott, I think it, it, it has a huge impact. You know, assuming that most of those races are going to be close, how folks run at the top of the ticket is enormously important um, in all of that. Um, and, and so I think that you know, what what you'll see in those states is you'll be able to tell how those candidates believe the president's doing on the referendum based upon how they're conducting their own campaigns. If you see people, if we're back to campaigning, wanting the president to come in, wanting the president to be with them and campaign with them, um, you know, then you'll know that the, they, they view in their state the president's doing pretty well. If you see them attempting to distance themselves, you know, then you're going to see the exact opposite. They think the president may be going down. I think that'll be a fool's errand, no matter what. I think if you're on the Republican side, with very few exceptions, you're going to be you're going to be heavily affected by how the president does at the top of the ticket. And in places like you just mentioned, um, you know, we have a number of Republican candidates who were elected six years ago in the very good 2014 midterm, where you were reelected, and a number of other folks, uh, Republicans, were elected across the country. You know, they're going to have to uh, stand first time in six years. That's going to be um, be interesting. I think 
again, how the president does is going to really impact uh, what happens. And if the president were to lose, I would not be surprised to see the new president, President Biden, if he were elected, um, come in with a Democratic House and Senate. Well, and uh, boy, that just, uh, I think for, for certainly for me and probably many of our listeners, just sent a, an awful chill uh, down our backs because uh, I think of uh, not necessarily where his instincts would be, but if you had Schumer and uh, Pelosi in charge, I think the president in many ways would be an afterthought. It would be them driving uh, the legislative agenda. In the, and the, if it was, it pains me to even say the words uh, President Joe Biden, but but go along for the way. So even if some people, and, and I believe there are some voters out there who perceive Joe Biden as somehow being a moderate or middle of the road, that that's only true if you compare him to uh, uh, to Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders was, you know, right out there with Pravda on, on the, the far, far left. Increasingly, Biden seems to be in, in embracing a lot of his policies. So uh, I, I, uh, I, I cringe thinking about that, but I think you're probably right that uh, uh, those good example being North Carolina I was just talking to some of our mutual friends uh, the other day, and uh, they were doing some polling in North Carolina. They had actually stopped in the middle of this crisis, uh, understandably so. They decided to try it again, and they found something that was surprising, I think, maybe to you and me and certainly to the listeners. They actually said their response rate has gone up dramatically. And I guess logically, maybe that makes sense. People got more time. They yeah. want to talk to people. They're, they're actually answering uh, the uh, the survey questions at much greater length than they had been in the past. But he said something that was a forewarning to me, and that was, he said, in a state like North Carolina, which is a bellwether, it's got the presidential race, obviously hosting the RNC, a key U.S. Senate race, a key governor's race, all of them being either top or near the top in terms of targeting. Normally in battleground states like that, you and I would see that there'd be a highly a split between Republicans and Democrats and a small percentage of independent swing voters that would make the difference. And those are the ones you need to talk to. They said in that poll that it actually was the number of independent or undecided voters had skyrocketed. And it now is that margin, uh, that percentage of the overall poll was competing with the people associated with either party. And they thought that was a reflection that people were just, you know, in this time, are confused about what to believe and who to believe. And, and uh, it's why negative ads, I don't think, at least for the time being, don't do any good because people are cynical about that. Uh, it's just going to be a sign of who's truly leading and who's not. I, I totally agree with you, Scott. And I, and I would, I would say, you know, I got asked this past Sunday on ABC about some of the ads that the president's super PAC were running uh, negative towards Joe Biden and connecting with China. And I was asked whether I thought that was the right thing to do. And I said, no, I think right now what people need to see if we're going to be doing any type of ads for for candidates is their positive attributes. You know, the, the, the president has done a lot of very good things in response to this crisis. I believe that his campaign and anybody who's doing things on his being, you know, in support of him, whether that's a super PAC or whatever, should be talking about the leadership he's provided, the positive things that he's done. Um, because I think that's what people want to hear right now. I think they will be horribly turned off by negativity and division because pe- people are scared. They want our country to be united, working towards a common goal of defeating the virus, controlling it, and uh, getting our, our, our country back to some sense of, of normalcy. 
you know, to, to end on that thought, I think one of the things you said before ties directly into what you just said now, and that is, if I was running ads on behalf of the president, I'd be taking clips of Gavin Newsom and, and uh, Governor Cuomo and other leaders like them praising the president for helping them out. And I'd be running them ads, uh, not just now, but as far as I could up till November, because uh, you can't change what they said. It was the truth. And, and you're right. If this is going to be a litmus test, if this is going to be a referendum on the president's leadership during this time of crisis, uh, what better uh, advocates uh, for his election, even if they're ultimately going to support Joe Biden, but what better statements than statements made by Democrat governors right now who are acknowledging the good work that he's doing? Amen, Scott. I, I agree 100 percent on that. And I think um, I hope that the president's um, uh, campaign doesn't get too cute on this stuff because sometimes you can overthink it. You and I have been in some tough races um, individually and together. And sometimes, you know, you get strategists around you who overthink it. Um, I think the president's instinct to be talking positively about what he's been doing um, is the right way to go. And, and, and I think that people will appreciate it. Oh, I am into that. I, I, I was I cringed because one of the ads I saw was that one with Pelosi, even though it's funny, and even though it gets our base all worked up. You know, the ad with her uh, standing in front of her, uh, her uh, <laughs> refrigerators, which yep. is funny with, uh, you know, gourmet uh, ice cream shows are completely out of touch. But in the end, other than getting our base riled up, that doesn't do a whole lot. I think for the, the swing voters, they're going to need in North Carolina, they're going to need here in my state in Wisconsin, they're going to need in Florida and in uh, Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania in particular, reaching out with ads that talk about the president's leadership, particularly if they come from unexpected sources. To me, endorsements only matter if you didn't see it coming. And again, this isn't necessarily an endorsement of the election, but if you've got Democrats saying good things about the president during this critical time, I'd be putting that up on air. Absolutely. Good, good insights. I agree. Well, uh, Governor Christie, Chris, uh, thank you so much. Uh, blessings to you and Mary Pat and the kids and and to all uh, the rest of you listening, we really appreciate Governor Chris Christie joining us here today. Thanks so much. Scott, thanks for having me in the same to Tonette and the boys. My pleasure. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, check us out next week. Uh, until then, keep fighting for freedom. We're glad to have you and be well.